Welcome to episode 244 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is retired Major General Peggy Wilma. She shares some advice from a military career spanning 35 and a half years. Dr. Wilmoth received her Ph.D. in nursing from the University of Pennsylvania. She also earned a Master's of Strategic Studies from the United States Army War College. She served in the Reserve and talked about what it was like to balance both a career in the military alongside her civilian career and some of the different challenges she faced, especially in how she was treated both in the civilian work environment and the military and how each one had their own unique challenges. She also talked about how important it is to advocate for yourself and we got to spend last weekend together in person speaking at the Power Up conference and it was really fun to meet her, to connect with other women and just be able to share my story in another place. So I'm really thankful for that opportunity and I'm excited to share this episode with you. Before we get started, I want to remind you that you can listen to Women of the Military podcast on Reefs Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, or Odyssey. And then the last thing I want to share before we get started is that episode 250 is coming up very quickly. And I want to hear from you, my audience members of what you like about the podcast. I want to hear if you have a favorite episode, if there's a story that impacted you, or if there's a theme, or just why you love the podcast. I want it to be a fun celebration, celebrating 250 episodes of Women of the Military. And so I'd really like to hear what you guys have to say and to make this a fun episode that includes all of you. So if you would like to participate, you can send me an email at airmentomom at gmail.com or you can find me on social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X at airman to mom is my handle. And I can't wait to hear about how the podcast has impacted your life because it's totally changed mine. So with all those announcements out of the way, let's get started with Peggy Wilma. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. We met through LinkedIn, and I'm really excited, even though this is going to go live in September. This is before September. We're recording, but we're going to be on a panel together in LA, and I'm really excited. And so thank you so much for being on the show. I'm very excited to join you. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm so excited you're going to be on the panel. Uh, this will be after, shown after the fact, but it is uh, Take the Lead Women's 2023 Power Up Conference and Concert led by Gloria Felt. So I'm really excited about that panel. And we're going to actually be hosting the first military women's panel at that event. I'm really excited. And I love that it's going to be in L.A. It's like, oh, all this stuff happens in D.C. And I get to actually just drive down the road a little bit of traffic, but it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a fun day. So let's start. When you were joining the military, why did you decide to join the military? I am one of those people that wanted to be an army nurse from the time I was about six or seven years old. I, we had a neighbor, we lived in Ohio at the time, and we had a neighbor who had been an army nurse in World War II. And so I would go over to Elizabeth's house and she would go through her trunk and show me things. Uh, I had an aunt who was a nurse. And so being an army nurse, 
was became a dream of mine. And again, I'm a product of the 50s and 60s. And so many occupations were not necessarily open to women. And I can't say that I had any encouragement to go in any other direction, but it was always my passion to become a nurse and to become an army nurse. And I'm, so I'm very, very fortunate, even though it was not a straight line to becoming an army nurse. Tried to join or get into the Walter Reed Army Institute of Nursing, which is now defunct, and um, wasn't lucky there. So I went on to college, went to University of Maryland, who also gave the Walter Reed students their degree, and tried to join as I was graduating from college. And after Vietnam, the, uh, the force was drawing down and they did not need as many nurses. So I was thwarted there, went on to work and was getting a master's degree. And my father-in-law at the time was in the Army Reserve. And I guess he got some kind of a bonus if he got someone recruited into the Army. So he approached me. My husband at the time thought it was okay idea. Uh, we did not have children yet. And so I started the process and I got pregnant in the middle of it. And the Army told me that, well, you can't be commissioned until after you have a baby because we won't know if you're healthy or not. And my feminism cut you know, what do you mean? Women have been having babies for millennia and you, but that was the rule. So I had to wait until after I had the baby. And at the time, because they needed nurses so badly, I was able to be direct commissioned as a captain. I already had a master's degree in nursing and I had seven plus years of experience. So I was direct commissioned as a captain. So I never had the luxury of being a lieutenant and being able to make lieutenant mistakes. I came in as, as an 03. Uh, but I think my story about persevering, about getting into the Army is one for others to and younger people who might want to consider uh, in any path of life. You, you go over, around, under, through obstacles to get to what you want to do. And I certainly persevered over a period of, of 10, 15 years of reaching my goal of getting into the Army after I was a nurse. I even tried ROTC in college and they weren't open to women yet. So, I mean, I tried every avenue there was that I thought to get to the, the dream of serving in uniform. And so I think women just need to persevere uh, no matter what obstacles are thrown in their way. Uh, in fact, my father even wrote a letter to me, one of the very few he ever wrote to me, your place is at home, you're a wife and a mother, do not join the army. Clearly I didn't listen. And I don't, I never, ever, ever regretted not listening to my father. That was one time that I did not pay attention to my dad's advice. And I, I can't imagine my life now if I had not served. So I served for a total of 35 years in the Army Reserve, which means I juggled two careers, kids. I was a single mom for 20 of those 35 years. So I juggled all of that. And I still have my sanity and I still smile and love life. It, it wasn't easy, but I, I believe that anything worthwhile should not be easy. You know, if you really want something, it requires hard work to get there. I agree with that. I think that the things that are hard, when you look back at them, you really see like how much you grew and how much it shaped who you were and where you are today. And if it had been easy, it wouldn't have been the same experience. You wouldn't have had that growth. You probably would have just stayed on the same path and it wouldn't have changed your life. No. And and it clearly changed my life for the for the better. And and the people I met along the way, I, I consider 
closer friends than people I work with Monday through Friday at my civilian place of employment. This is a different kind of bonding. As, as every, most military women will tell you, this is a different kind of bonding. Now, I never had any sexual harassment issues. Maybe it was because I was in a medical unit and we were very well mixed gender-wise. And there was a lot of looking out for each other and mutual respect. So I, I didn't experience any of the other kind of negative things that many women have experienced. So I, I was fortunate in that regard. But I think it was just the caliber of people I was with. That makes sense. But you did talk about, like, there was a little bit of resistance. Your dad was like, don't join the army. And I'm sure he wasn't the only one who was like, I mean, what was that experience like? Because, I mean, nursing, probably people were all for you being a nurse because that was a traditional It's very traditional. Yeah. Yeah. But the army, not as much. When I became, when I was in 06, I had, I had I not yet finished the war college, but I was a battalion level. In, in, in the, at the time, in the Army Medical Department, a battalion command, you were in 06, very different from other parts of the Army. So I had a hot commanding, um, commanded a field hospital and a couple downtrace units. And right after I took command, the physicians demanded to meet with me because they were not happy having a nurse as the commander who would write their OERs, their evaluations. And so they, right after the change of command, met with me and there's a special, they had special rules. They didn't have to come every drill and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know, you need to show up and you need to participate. And if one of you wants my job someday, then you need to come and be part participate and you need to understand how the army runs. You need to come in and you need to work in ops. You need to work in the, the four shop. And they looked at me like I, you know, I, I had just grown a second head. And then when we went to the field, they would stay in the BOQ. I'm like, no, 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 no. You stay in the field with everybody else. I'm in the field. Well, we're doctors. We can, what do you mean? <laughs> so they, they, physicians, they had their own little set of rules. And one of them eventually did take over for me, got the command after I left it. He was one of the loudest complaining when I became the commander. But I think he understood once he got in the job how hard it was. And um, he disappeared off and I think he got out of the army. When I became a one star, I was told by my two star male physician boss that I hoped I was happy that I had taken a job away from a doctor. Um, and I was the first female in the army, active or reserve, to be a commanding general of a medical brigade. At the time, med brigades were commanded by general officers. And so I, I had a lot of people watching and trying to trip me up. And I, I mean, I had those kinds of challenges, but I didn't have any of the, the sexual assault kinds. I had other ones. And it's hard to ferret out how much it was because I was a nurse or if I was because I was a female and a nurse because so, a male became the first, a male nurse became the first two-star in the army reserve commanding a, a two-star level element. And I don't think he had any of the problems I did. So I think part of it was because I was a woman. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's interesting because they were, they used the physician piece and like, instead of saying the woman piece, but it's really interesting because it would be interesting to hear his story and see if like he did have similar type of things or if it was 
the fact that you were a female nurse and that was really what was bothering them. I think it was because I was a female nurse. The interesting thing and and another uh, lesson for those to follow, you have to advocate for yourself. And when someone opens, even cracks open a window, you need to walk through it, run through it, barrel through it. Early in OIF, there was a physician who was a commanding general of a med brigade who got tagged to take another element into Iraq and they needed a backfill interim commander for this med brigade. And so our two-star level, uh, the chief of staff of our two-star command called me and he said, so Peg, um, we need someone who's going to 332nd and, you know, anybody you can recommend? And I just said, you mean besides me, Steve? I can't think of a soul. Had I not said that, I would not have been the interim commander and I would not have gotten on the radar to be a one star. So that is proof to me that anecdotal evidence, but you need, when someone cracks open a window, opens a door, you had better run through it because it'll close shut if you don't. You could have easily said someone else's name. Instead, you were like, but I could do it. Why wouldn't I just say me? I know. I, I almost gave him someone else's name. And I thought, I'm going to advocate for myself here. But prior to that, I had had a chance to leave my hospital command early to be a chief of staff for someone, uh, a wonderful gentleman, but not in the medical arena. It was in the other part of the Army Reserve logistics, MPs, transporters, all of those uh, CSS kinds of elements. And it took him several phone calls to call me and say, now, Colonel Wilmoth. And finally, I didn't have any mentors. And so finally, it dawned on me that someone was opening a door for me and I had better walk through it. So finally waking up and leaving my command early to go be his chief of staff introduced me to a whole different set of players outside of the medical arena. And then it was one of them who knew me and then called and said, who can you recommend to be this interim commander? So it was those two sets of activities that, but other people saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. And you hear that a lot, but we, we do need to, we don't need to second guess ourselves as women. We need to barrel through it. Yeah. I mean, I've women for sure. I mean, when you sent me a message to be on the panel, I was like, why is she reaching out to me? And then I was like, oh, like I have done things. She's watching me. She's seeing, like you're seeing something in me that I didn't see in myself. And it wasn't until after we like met with Ginger and we started talking about the panel. I was like, oh, I can do this. I am the right person. But at first I was like, of course I said yes, but it, I also had that self doubt of like, why is she picking me? Like, <laughs> what have I done? You've done a lot. I, kn- I know. And you, ha- and you have moved the way for others. And um, you need to own that. Too too often, I think, and it's really true in my profession of, of nursing, we're uncivil to one another. We, we bully one another. We are passive aggressive. If you watch old issues of MASH, you can see the mean girl behavior. We need to stop that because it's only hurting all of us. Right. We just need to lift each other up and, and pave the way for whoever's next to us or behind us. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what the podcast is about is sharing the voices of women and elevating those stories. And then I've also got to help other women start their podcast or they've told me that I've inspired them to start a podcast. And it's just so cool to hear the different types of stories that are shared and the different ways, you know, because, hey, I can't talk to all the 
the women and men who have served in the military. Some women veterans uh, don't just interview women. And there's so much on the table and we can support each other and come alongside each other and not tear each other down and like try and it is rising tide lifts all boats. I think that's really true. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, and the other thing in um, Nancy Pelosi has said this, you know, as you climb a corporate ladder or any ladder, you, you do have to grow a bit of a thick skin because as you make decisions, as you, cause you're going to know more information than anybody around, whether you're the commander, commanding general, CEO, you have to be, you have to trust your decision-making ability and withstand the pushback you're going to get and just know that you've made the right decision for the right reasons. And my, my litmus test is, can I look in the mirror and be happy with the decision I've made? Yeah. You do have to grow thick sin because I mean, I get a lot of pitches for the podcast and it's really hard for me to say no, but I have to set, like, I had to work really hard on boundaries. I had to work on like remembering it's my podcast and I get to run the podcast, not some random person who's asking. And, but it's really hard for me. And I've had to like go through exercises to learn how to say no, how to advocate for myself and how to make those decisions. But it's not easy. And I don't think people see all those hard things going on behind the scenes. They only see the good things that they think, oh, how can I be like that person? And they don't see the struggle to get where to get where you are. You're like a swan gracefully, but down below you're paddling really fast. That's for sure. So let's talk a little bit. You mentioned that you got pregnant and I know that like the laws around women being moms and serving in the military, I don't remember the exact date of when it changed, but was that part of the like complication or when did that all change and how did that affect your career? It had no effect on my career. I mean, again, I was a reservist. And so there's very, very, very few benefits. There's you know, no paid maternity. I mean, there's no, you just don't show up to your reserve drill and you don't get paid. And then you don't have a good year. I mean, it, it bites you in the sense that you don't have enough points for a good year, depending on how long you stay out. You know, the FMLA probably came out mid late eighties, Family Medical Leave Act. And that's when I think the military active duty side started looking at FMLA. And I think they just changed the law within the last, maybe in, in, in the two years, maybe three years for parents to have um, paid medical leave. And if they adopt a child, both parents. So I think, you know, that those within the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, though the laws have changed over the last 30 some years. But um, as a reservist, you know, you don't you don't get any paid. You don't get paid unless you show up to drill. That's just the way it is. There's an organization. It started off being called Reserve Officers Association. We now do business as Reserve Organization of America because we serve all ranks. But when General Pershing started ROA in 1922 to advocate for reservists, most of the Army Reserve, most of reservists were in the Medical Corps because that was the first part of the Army Reserve was the Medical Corps. So it was primarily officer centric. But it's because of the legislative work of ROA that a reservist gets paid for working like Saturday, Sunday, they get paid the equivalent of four active duty days. Each four hour block of time is equivalent to a day. 
but it's because of the work of ROA in advocating for reservists. And now we're on the verge of having a, a DD-214 that will equivalent, that will consider all of our duty, not just our annual training and we'll get some categories for other kinds of drill. Not that it will give us different veteran status, but it's a way that we will have a record of our military activity analogous to those on active duty. Yeah, because there are a lot of like restrictions. Like if you do any research about like VA benefits or, you know, the GI Bill and you like look at Reserve and National Guard, it's very different and very restrictive to, you know, I didn't realize how much being on active duty like opens the door to everything and then reserve and national guard soldiers and airmen and you know all the different branches they're very restricted on like what benefits they get and it's kind of it's disappointing because of you know how many i've talked to people who worked in the reserves and it's not reserves it's reserve reserve and national guard and how much sacrifice it takes and how much commitment it takes and the military couldn't operate without those branches. Yeah, in the Army medical world, the Army Reserve is 60% of the Army's medical go-to-war capability. The Army cannot go to war without the Army Reserve. But for, you know, for a long time, it the Cold War reservists who served in during the Cold War, when they retired, they had no active duty time. They couldn't even refer to themselves as a veteran. How sad to think you sacrificed 20 plus years missing baseball games, birthdays, you name it, going to schools, and you couldn't even call yourself a veteran? What an insult. But that, I think it's, is it six years? I know someone, one of my friends who served in the reserve, and she didn't do enough time to, she can't be a veteran-owned business. That might be different. But she can't, she feels very, like, uncomfortable with the veteran because she's not classified as a veteran, even though she served in the reserve as a soldier and it just it she didn't meet the time requirements and for me that's crazy because you know you signed up to serve your country you're the one percent of americans volunteer to serve a lot of it is because the va i mean that's a huge chunk of the budget and so they're they're always that's why we're always put on 179 day orders because in the law 180 days or more so i was always on 179 day orders so i didn't trip over into becoming active duty and then entitled to veterans benefits as an active duty soldier. Yes. Yeah. And even active duty had their own limitations. If you were under 179 days, once you got over that day, it unlocked benefits for even active duty for like when you get home and different benefits. And so it's kind of funny that that day. And so that was like, everybody was affected by it because it affected active duty. It also affected the reserve and national guard. And so it's kind of interesting how that's like all intertwined and they made it so it was like everybody so that you didn't really think about the fact that I I went on a nine month deployment. And so I went over that day and people when I got home, they were like, well, are you sure that you were there more than 179 days? And I was like, yes, I'm sure I was over 200. Like, it's not even close. And it was funny how people we're like, are you sure that you were there for over? And I was like, yes, I know how long I was in the country, but it was very like not, they were very worried that I was trying to like beat the system. And I was like, I just deployed to Afghanistan. Like, let's not worry about that. Yeah, that, that's why we need more veterans to serve in Congress to change some of these laws. Yeah, 
my husband and I recently watched Amsterdam. Is it? I think it's Amsterdam, and it's about World War One veterans, and it was really interesting because hearing about what World War One veterans went through without like the advocacy and the different things, I told my husband, I was like, you know why we have such good benefits for veterans because World War One happened. All the veterans got treated like crap. And then World War II happened and the World War I veterans, I'm sure, even though I haven't read any history about it, had to advocate to make it so that the World War II veterans got the benefits that they have because we have such good benefits. And in that movie, there's so much history. I mean, there's a lot of fiction. It's historical fiction, but there's so much history that I didn't know about. And it's interesting how much World War One had to play in the future. But often when we talk about the World War, we always talk about World War Two. I know so much World War Two history and very little World War One. Well, and that's how General Pershing came back and started ROA to advocate for reservists because of what he experienced in in, um, in World War One. Yeah. Yeah, so like groups like that were created by the World War One veterans, and then they advocated after World War Two or during World War Two. Yeah, and it's crazy to think like how forgotten that generation of veterans are in the stories that we don't know. Well, and, and the veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan were active in getting the PACT Act passed. I mean, they were so critical to, to that and making it better for themselves and then those who come after. Same with the Vietnam vets and, and Agent Orange. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Veterans need to be in Congress. We need to be out advocating. I've benefited from the PACT Act. I'm working on my claim now. I'm enrolled in the VA healthcare system. And it's because of the PACT Act, because number one, that was my like cue to get off my butt and actually go and do what I was supposed to do. But also it extended the time limit that I had to enroll, which runs out in October, but I'm already enrolled, so it's fine. But it went from five to 10 years. And that really made a big difference. And then also it, you know, added all these things from burn pits that affected. I had skin cancer that I found really early, luckily. And so I'm able to do a claim for that and to get the health care treatment at the VA Medical Center for veterans. And so it's, I'm really grateful for it. And I, I was moving across the country while they were advocating on Capitol Hill. And I was like, I wish we weren't PCSing because I was in the D.C. area and I would have went and been on the Capitol. But I remember watching the story like each day as they were advocating and I knew they were there fighting for me and how important it was. Well, ROA was there with Jon Stewart on the hill on the Capitol. Yeah, we were there. I wasn't personally, but others were. Yeah. Jon Stewart was I mean, I saw video after video of what he did, and I'm so grateful because I think he, I mean, you need people like that, like celebrities and people who can really push and grab national attention with, you know, it's really hard for veterans, such a small population to get noticed when we don't have, you know, people who have a larger reach who can advocate for us. So... What else from your career do you want to highlight? You mentioned deploying. You mentioned a lot of things. What What else would you like to pull out of your story? Well, command is probably the best job in the Army. First day and last day of command. But it, it's it's all inspiring to think how much an impact you can make on, on a soldier's life as a senior officer. I know my son was on the invasion force into Iraq, and I didn't hear from him for five or six months. Not a peep. I only knew he was alive because no one showed up on my front door. And so when I would be doing deployments, I would tell my young troops, you need to write your mother. 
You need to write your mother. You need to write your mother. And because of him, I had to call a rear detachment. They had to pull. Anyway, it was a whole, I, I managed to embarrass them. That's what parents do. But I was able to be back when one soldier returned and he was going through the receiving line and said, my mother said to say, thank you. Because of you, I wrote to her. And I think it's important as, as leaders to understand that when you can make a personal connection like that, that's really what leadership is all about. When, when you know you really impacted someone's life and that, that it made a difference, to me, that's what, what leadership should be all about. I had some great opportunities. I served on the uh, Reserve Forces Policy Committee. When I got the invitation, the, this two-star boss that told me I took a job away from a doctor, he was like, oh, Peggy, you're lucky to be invited, but they'll never pick you. Well, it was a letter saying I had been selected to serve on the Army Reserve Forces Policy Committee. And so he wasn't happy that I was getting this opportunity inside the Pentagon. But that opportunity um, opened my eyes to other key individuals who helped mentor me into what it meant to be a general officer because I was not getting that from my own peers inside Army Medical Detachment, Army Med, AMED. They just, you know, I was, I, I was threatening. And so I found mentors who were command, who were leaders, general officers in other arenas. And that was really instrumental. So again, you know, you never know who's advocating for you and who's going to help you get an opportunity. And, and you don't say no to those things. Yeah, for sure. And I loved how you talked about mentorship and like finding mentors if you're like in a place where you might not have someone that you feel there's other opportunities. I think sometimes we get stuck. And I know when I was a lieutenant, I felt like my only mentor option was my commander. And I didn't feel like he was doing a very good job of like helping me as an officer. And so I didn't think about like what other options are there around me. And I think that's really good to know, like, no matter enlisted or officer, like, you don't have to stay in your career field, you can go outside and find different people. And even LinkedIn, like with the way technology's changed in the last 20 years, like you have LinkedIn where you can connect with people on LinkedIn. And I've made so many relationships and it's not, it's a relationship, a back and forth thing over time. It takes time to build, but it's it's been really instrumental and I know that I can reach out to people when I'm in trouble or if I need help and having those relationships is so important. When I, I was a Robert with Johnson health policy fellow for about 18 months in the middle of being um, a one star. And um, I was able to do a course at Harvard called women in power. And from that, I took away the idea of having a kitchen cabinet Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about who are running for office. They need to have like a kitchen cabinet who can help them stay grounded and, and kind of weed out some of the, the yes people and give you solid advice. Well, the same thing is true, I think, for all of us as we go through life or as we grow and expand and become more senior leaders. You need to have some trusted people you can talk to, but who you will also hear when they say, don't do that, or you need to do that, but that they're outside your chain of command, they're outside your own field, and have people from other walks of life who you know you can turn to, to say, hey, this is happening, this is how I'm thinking about approaching it, what do you think? And, and get some advice from other people. So identify three or four people, 
no more than five who you would call your counselors, your kitchen cabinet of people that from different walks of life who can kind of be your sounding board. Um, I, I have found that to be a very helpful technique. Yeah, that's so great because I think sometimes it's easier to go and like talk to people who are like in the situation and then it can easily turn into gossip and not like actually, you know, advice or feedback because that person's involved there. You're involved. You both have feelings and emotions and it can like, you know, spin out of control. But if you can find someone who is not connected and can like listen to you and give you sound advice, then that can really help. I'm doing a leadership role for a mom's group starting next year and I've had different challenges and I was just thinking I need to find someone who is like outside of the group that I can go to for advice and feedback so that it doesn't turn into gossip and so that I can get you know, advice from an outside source who's looking at it objectively and not emotionally where, you know, sometimes I get very emotionally involved and it, it's hard to stay grounded and to find the right thing. But it's really easy if you have someone in the organization to go from getting advice to gossiping and then that that doesn't that's help. That's the wrong place to go. You need to go have your kitchen cabinet away from and kind of pull through um, how you want to handle things. The other thing is, I can, can be reactive. So I tend to go for a jog or a walk or whatever, just to walk away from the situation, calm down, think rationally. I learned that when I was the commanding general and I was the UCMJ authority. And I learned then not to make knee jerk decisions. My um, JAG would say, now, ma'am, let's think about this a little bit. And why don't you sleep on it? And we'll talk tomorrow. It will, because it's, it's not crisis. You don't have to make a decision tonight. He would call me, you know, after work because he was, you know, he had a civilian career too. He was working in the federal, federal prosecutor's office. Anyway, he had a very busy career. And that taught me a lot about not everything needs a decision today. Not every decision is a hair on fire, you know, life and death where you have to make a decision. And so learning how to walk away as a friend of mine said, kind of let the soup cool off before you, you know, just kind of let things simmer a little bit. And sometimes this, it, it's the problem solves itself. Yeah, that's, it reminds me of a story I was telling my, I don't know, he's like eight years old then. And I was like, remember, you count to five when you get upset. And he's like, I'm not a baby. I don't need that, mom. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> mom <laughs> needs that, too. That's not something that you only need when you're, you know, a toddler. That's something that it's something that we need throughout our lives to remember, like, I've got to take a break. I got to sit, step back. Take a yeah. deep breath, walk away, walk to the ladies room, whatever, go get a cup of coffee, you know, just kind of let it diffuse and sleep on it overnight. There's very few crises. Still learning. Aren't we all? If we ever stop learning, that's, that's when we, you know, that's when you crumple up and shrivel away. So I... I wanted to see if there was one more thing from your career or piece of advice that you could give us before I dive into my last question. Life is short. Do what gives you joy. Find your passion and and then nothing is work and it will it will reap its own benefits. So if if you're not happy with something, find out find out what it is that that will bring you joy and Find a way to, to do that as a as a career. If you need to, I was taking a um, one of Gloria Felt's courses recently, 
about intentioning. And one of the women walked away from her job. She said, I need the summer to rethink. And she, she's fortunate she had a spouse and they could financially make it work that she just needed to step back and recenter herself and figure out what it was she wanted to do. You know, in the, in the military, once you, you're in a career path, that's a little harder to do. Enlisted can change their MOSs and get reclassed into something a little harder for officers. I know one time when I wanted to um, command in the Army school system, well, because a, a nurse and a physician and the clinical folks couldn't command in the Army school system because we're clinicians. I'm like, I'm a university professor. <laughs> so there's, there's also, I think, just question rules. Find out why why something is. Because sometimes you get this, you know, well, it's their rule. And I, I you, you have to be strong enough to, to question rules appropriately and find out what the real truth is. Yeah, that's definitely a theme that people have touched on on the podcast. You're not the first one to say that, like, tell me why this regulation or tell me why you're saying I can't do this. Tell me why. Show me where it says I can't do it. Obviously, respectfully, but it's interesting that when you question people and you're like, why can't I do that? Often the answer is, well, this is the way it's always been done. It's like, but is it done in tradition or is it done because that's the regulation? And there's countless times where people have found out that it's only because of that's the way it's always been done and not because that's the way it only can be done. I just feel very, very blessed. I, the one, the big hole in my career that I really feel that I missed out on was the deployment. I think, again, if I was to be paranoid and suspicious, I would think, you know, the gremlins worked against me to get keep me from deploying. That That's the one, one hole in my career, if you will. But my son deploy has deployed twice. And I will tell you, it's much harder to be the parent left at home than I would imagine it is to actually be the person being deployed. Yeah, I think it was harder for my husband to be left behind than for me because I was deployed with a team of people and we were all going through the same thing. And he was very alone and isolated and didn't have that support network behind. And so I think that it is really hard on families and, you know, especially moms and dads who aren't like at a unit, maybe you have other spouses that you can connect with, but and in the reserve and National Guard, I feel like you're even more isolated. So and we did a lot of cross leveling, and and it's it'll be public knowledge by the time this is shown. But I will be in Washington starting in September to be the distinguished nurse scholar in residence at the National Academies of Medicine, and I'm going to be looking at military family policy as it relates to reserve component families, because there are things I think we can and should do better for our reserve component families. And I'm hoping to find a way to uh, improve our policies to better support them during my year in Washington. That's awesome. Congratulations. That's really cool. So I always like to end my interview. You've given us like so much advice and so much wisdom. I think that that comes from the generals that I talk to. It comes from other people too, but like you guys have so much like wealth of experience that you you can't just not share it. So I, I'm really thankful, but what would you tell someone who's considering joining the military? I actually mentioned this to a group of students um, a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching. You don't want to get to your mid forties and say, woulda, shoulda, coulda. And as I told a group of students once when I was giving a graduation talk, don't let anybody fence you in 
and tell you, box you in what you, what they think you need to be doing. You need to define your own life and your own career on your terms, particularly when you're young and you don't have others to consider in your decision-making, a spouse, kids, or a house. Once you have those important things and people in your life, it, it restricts your decision-making. So while you're young, explore, try different things, risk, and do something that you don't think that, that many others are not doing so that you don't walk away and have regrets later in life. I think that's great advice. I, I really love that. It's just a good reminder that when you're young, there is a lot more freedom and that you should follow those passions. And and that way, that's one of the things I'm like, if you are considering joining the military and you think, well, if I don't do this and 10 years from now, if I look back, will I regret that decision? That will tell you a lot about if you want to join or if it's just some crazy idea because if you look back and you think oh i i'll look back at this moment and say i wish i would have at least you know gone to the medical physical found out if i could serve then it, that really helps you decide how to go forward yeah it's um like i said my father wrote me a letter don't join the military i'm so glad i didn't pay attention to that I mean, I've, I've kept that letter to this day, but I'm so glad I did not pay attention. My life would be so much less rich and have been so boring. Um, and I wouldn't have met half the people. And so one of my mottos is nothing ventured, nothing gained. And you have to risk, you have to step, I mean, calculated risk, obviously you're not gonna jump out of an airplane without a parachute on, but you need to you know, know what your risk tolerance is and go to the edge of that. I mean. At this point in my career, I could retire, but yet I'm still working and I'm going to go to DC for a year. I'm uprooting, moving again to try to make a difference. And so I, while you're young and you don't have a house to consider or a spouse, or my kids are grown now, uh, you need to, to risk and find your joy, find your passion. I love it. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your advice and wisdom and pieces of your story. I really, Thank really. You. Thanks everyone for watching and listening. If you have comments or questions, feel free to put them in the chat and I'll get back to them and we'll have another interview next week. Thank you. Take care, everybody.